This Daily 202 podcast is sponsored by Nokia. Nokia is helping drive 5G for America. Powered by Nokia Bell Labs, our innovations accelerate the nation's future. Learn more at nokia.com slash open to more. Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Monday, July 20th. In today's news, the president struggles to defend his handling of COVID-19. Endangered GOP senators are under pressure as Congress returns from recess to take up a new relief package. And the Bahamas block commercial flights from the United States. But first, the big idea. Isabel Papa Demetrio, a respiratory therapist in Dallas, had been treating a surge of patients as the Texas economy reopened. The 64-year-old developed COVID-19 symptoms on June 27th and tested positive two days later. The disease was swift and brutal. She died the morning of the 4th of July. The holiday had always been her daughter's favorite. Fiona Tulip loved the family cookouts, the fireworks, the feeling of America united. Now, she wonders whether she'll ever celebrate the holiday again. In mourning, she's furious. She feels like her mom's death was 100% preventable. She's angry at the Trump administration. She's angry with the state of our politics. She's angry at people who even now refuse to wear masks. Isabel is one of more than 137,000 of our fellow Americans who have succumbed to the terrible contagion. Six months after the coronavirus first appeared here on our shores, the nation has failed spectacularly to contain it. My colleagues Joel Achenbach, William Wan, Karen Brouillard, and Chelsea Janes report today on how the country's ineffective response has shocked observers around the planet. Many countries have rigorously driven infection rates nearly to zero. But here in the United States, coronavirus transmission is out of control, literally. The national response is fragmented, shot through with political rancor and culture war divisiveness. Testing shortcomings that revealed themselves back in March have only become more acute in July, with week-long waits for results leaving the country blind to real-time virus spread and rendering contact tracing nearly irrelevant. The U.S. may be heading toward a new spasm of wrenching economic shutdowns, or to another massive spike in preventable deaths from COVID-19, or both. How the world's richest country got into this dismal situation is a complicated tale that exposes the flaws and fissures in a nation long proud of its ability to meet cataclysmic challenges. The fumbling of the football was no fluke. This fiasco has exposed our country's incoherent leadership, self-defeating political polarization, a lack of investment in public health, and persistent socioeconomic and racial inequities that have left millions of folks vulnerable to the disease and death. Other countries have managed to avoid this kind of dramatic viral resurgence that's happening. Spain, Italy, Germany, and France, all devastated by the virus months ago, drove cases and deaths to relatively low levels. The UK has been an outlier in Europe with one of the highest per capita death tolls in the world, but after suppressing transmission, it has not seen a major rebound. And in Asia, the picture is radically different. 
In Taiwan, baseball fans sit in the stands to watch their teams play. Japan has had fewer than 1,000 deaths from COVID. South Korea has had fewer than 300. Vietnam, Vietnam has recorded not a single death from the virus. The death rate from COVID in the United States puts us in league with third world countries with vastly lower wealth, fewer healthcare resources, and less technological infrastructure. Consider this. Last October, not long before the coronavirus began sickening people in Wuhan, China, a comprehensive review ranked the pandemic preparedness of 195 countries. The project called the Global Health Security Index, spearheaded by Johns Hopkins and the Nuclear Threat Initiative, assigned scores to every country as a way to warn them of the rising threat of infectious disease outbreaks. With a score of 83.5 out of 100, the U.S. ranked number one. So how on earth did our nation get caught so flat-footed? Beth Cameron, who helped lead that project, blames the federal government for punting responsibility to the states, counties, and cities. Beth was a senior director for global health security and biodefense on the White House National Security Council. She helped write the pandemic response playbook under Barack Obama. The team that Cameron led on the NSC was disbanded after Donald Trump took office. Kristen Urquiza, who is 39, said she tried warning her father, Mark, a lifelong Republican, against going out and risking infection. In their home state of Arizona, as Governor Doug Ducey sprinted to reopen in May and June, Kristen could tell she was losing the argument. She remembers her dad pushing back on her warnings by saying that Fox News and the governor wouldn't say it was safe to go out if it wasn't true. Mark died of the virus on June 30th. In the obituary, his daughter wrote she lashed out at Trump and Ducey. She says they betrayed her dad. But the problem is bigger than a few failed politicians. Even before the pandemic hit, local public health agencies had been decimated by years of staffing and budget cuts. They had lost almost a quarter of their overall workforce since 2008, a cut of almost 60,000 workers. The agency's main source of federal funding, the CDC's emergency preparedness budget, had been cut 30 percent since 2003. Experts say America now approaches a tipping point at which its public health systems could become so overwhelmed that they begin to collapse. Already, coronavirus test results take so long to come back that they're almost useless for anything except as a historical record. These delays have a cascading effect. Contact tracing is rendered ineffectual. Containing the virus by isolation becomes impossible. And as hospitals fill, the virus's fatality rate could inch upward because of overtaxed ICU nurses and doctors struggling to care for so many. Governors and local officials across the Sun Belt have announced incremental measures in recent days to halt the resurgence of the virus. California instituted a statewide mask requirement. Arkansas and Colorado did so on Thursday. Arizona finally allowed local jurisdictions to implement mask mandates as they see fit. But Florida's governor has resisted weeks of calls to implement such a mandate. Georgia Governor Brian Kemp announced last week that all local mask mandates in his state are void. He's even suing the city of Atlanta to block theirs. Louisiana and Texas recently shut down all their bars all over again. Alabama Governor Kay Ivey, a Republican, announced a statewide mask mandate in recent days as an alternative to closing back down. West Virginia has limited gatherings to 25 people or fewer. In New York, Governor Andrew Cuomo, a Democrat, threatened to close restaurants altogether if social distancing is not taken more seriously. Fiona, whose mom died in Texas, is preparing for a three-day drive across the country 
from her home in New York back to Texas to bury her mother. She's been thinking a lot about what it means to be an American. She was raised, like many Texans, unabashedly proud of her roots and her patriotism. She remembers singing the song, Proud to Be an American, in elementary school and meaning every word. Now she feels let down. For the past two weeks, she and her husband have been calling funeral homes in Brownsville, unable to get through because her mom's hometown has been overwhelmed by the contagion. Fiona desperately wants to believe that we as a country can change, that we can recover from where we are now. She wants to believe that America can get back to being a proud country where people can thrive and not suffer. Public health experts are worried about this growing sense of despair, which can be contagious and have dangerous effects. If we lose hope, we could lose the resolve we need to vanquish the virus. As Michael Osterholm, the director of the University of Minnesota's Center for Infectious Disease Research, explains, when you lose hope, you lose the ability to act rationally. When you lose the commitment to fight, you lose all chance of beating back the virus. And the stakes are too high for us to lose. Fight on we must, and fight on we will. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar as we start what unfortunately will likely be another hellish week in America. Number one, Trump said in an interview on Fox News Sunday that the rising number of U.S. deaths from the coronavirus, quote, is what it is. He defended his fumbled management of the pandemic with a barrage of dubious and false claims and revealed his lack of understanding about the fundamental science of how the virus spreads and infects folks. Trump was visibly rattled and at times hostile as he struggled to answer for his administration's failure. He also suggested that he might not even accept the results of November's election should he lose because he predicted without evidence that, quote, mail-in voting is going to rig the election. Trump, whom aides say no longer attends coronavirus task force meetings because he doesn't have time, showed himself to be particularly misinformed about the basics of the virus that's been ravaging our nation. Confronted by Chris Wallace with a chart showing that the number of coronavirus cases last week more than doubled from the spring peak in April, Trump replied, quote, if we didn't test, you wouldn't be able to show that chart. If we tested half as much, those numbers would be down. By the president's logic, that assumes people contract the virus only if they test positive, ignoring the fact that many people are asymptomatic carriers and unknowingly spread the contagion without taking a test or being reported. Wallace later explained to Trump during the hour-long interview that the number of tests has increased by 37%, but the number of cases has shot up by 194%. Trump and his aides recently have sought to divert attention from the soaring number of cases by focusing on the rate of deaths. In the Fox interview, Trump falsely asserted that we have one of the lowest mortality rates in the world. Wallace told him that's just not true, noting that we had 900 deaths on a single day last week, and the United States ranks 7th among 20 countries in mortality rate, worse than Brazil and Russia. The president then called Tony Fauci, the government's top infectious disease expert, quote, a little bit of an alarmist. Trump also challenged the assessment of Bob Redfield, who he appointed as director of the CDC. Redfield warned again last week that the pandemic could worsen this fall when the flu season begins, reflecting a widespread scientific consensus. Trump said Redfield wouldn't know. Number two. As the Senate returns this week for a three-week sprint before its August break, 
Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, the Republican from Kentucky, is facing competing demands from Trump and Republican senators, including some who are up for re-election in states that have been hit hard by the virus and are coming under withering attacks by Democratic challengers over the pandemic. In particular, the expiration of an additional $600 per week in unemployment insurance by July 31st is adding pressure on vulnerable senators as 20 million to 30 million people remain out of work. McConnell and many other Republicans adamantly oppose extending the enhanced benefit at its current level, saying it discourages some from returning to work because they make more money by staying home. Republican Senator Cory Gardner of Colorado said his constituents are pressing him for more federal assistance and said he supports extending the enhanced unemployment benefit, although he's open to an amount less than the additional $600 a week. He said he's also open to Democratic demands for more aids to state and local governments. Another at-risk Republican senator, Susan Collins of Maine, told reporters last week that she's seeking more state and local aid and a fresh round of aid for small business and education funding to help schools reopen. McConnell is expected to unveil a new relief proposal as early as tomorrow with a target value of $1 trillion, although some Republicans speculate the figure could be even larger. Trump continues to insist on a cut in payroll taxes, which funds Social Security as part of the next package, although few Republicans are warm to that idea and House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, the Democrat from California, has repeatedly expressed opposition. The prime red line for Senate Republican leaders has been liability protections. McConnell has a plan that offers schools, charities, businesses, and medical workers a legal shield from being held responsible in coronavirus-related lawsuits unless there was, quote, gross negligence or intentional misconduct. That's according to a draft of his proposal obtained by my colleagues Sungman Kim, Rachel Bade, and Erica Werner. Number three. Citing our soaring infection numbers, the Bahamas banned all commercial flights from the United States. But commercial flights from Canada, Britain, and the European Union will still be allowed to land there because those places appear to have the virus under control. The thing I'm most excited about for the week ahead is the return of Major League Baseball. My fantasy baseball league has its draft on Wednesday night, and the first games of the abridged season are set to start Thursday. But the Washington Nationals do not know where they will play the Toronto Blue Jays because Canada is not allowing the team to play in the country or the American teams to fly into Canada to compete. Washington's first road trip is to face the Blue Jays on July 29th, but the team is now scrambling to pick between Buffalo, New York, or Florida for the coming season. And that leaves the Nationals unsure of where they will head for the sixth and seventh games of their schedule. And that's The Daily 202 for Monday, July 20th. Thank you for listening. I really enjoyed my vacation. Thanks so much to Ariel Plotnick, Allison Michaels, and Reese Tebow for filling in as I hiked, biked, sailed, and ate lots of lobster in Maine. For longtime listeners, you might remember that we did a listener survey last year. It's always incredibly helpful to get your feedback on how we can make this show as useful as possible for you. We're doing another survey to assess the 202 and our whole suite of podcasts, and we'd love to get your thoughts again. To share your feedback, please go to WashingtonPost.com slash podcast survey, all one word. Again, that's WashingtonPost.com slash podcast survey. Tell us what you like, what you don't, and what else you want from us. Please stay safe. I'll talk to you tomorrow.